Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're joined by bookseller Brian Cassidy. Brian joins us from Silver Spring, which I believe is just north of Washington, D.C. Brian has more than 20 years experience in bookselling. He specializes in 20th century avant-garde and counterculture. Last year, he co-founded a new bookselling venture called Type Punch Matrix, along with Rebecca Romney, who is the rare book specialist on the History Channel's Porn Star Show. Welcome, Brian. Richard, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, first question. Let's go right back to the beginning. How and where did your life in, in, in bookselling begin? Uh, well, I, I like to joke, although there is a grain of truth to it that I, I ended up in book selling because I failed as a poet. Um, I uh, got my master's degree at the University of uh, Iowa in poetry um, in the uh, early to mid 1990s and while I was doing that uh, I also started uh, working in bookshops and, and got my start at uh, Prairie Lights um, in Iowa City um, and then for most of my 20s while I was um, trying to establish myself as much as one can as a poet. Um, I was doing some part-time teaching, and in between the part-time teaching, I was um, supplementing that with uh, work in other independent bookstores. Um, so I, I worked in a, um, a now-defunct uh, independent bookstore in Monterey, California called Bay Books, and then I spent um, a number of years um, as a buyer and uh, as the poetry events coordinator at the Tattered Cover in Denver. Um, and then uh, after my daughter was born, um, I was uh, kind of looking for something that I could do from the house. And this was kind of the early days of um, eBay and, and the early days of Abe. Uh, and I had accumulated a large number of um, advanced readers' copies and proofs and signed books um, from my years working in independent bookstores. And the idea, the thought of maybe trying to sell those online kind of began to develop. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I, I just really kind of fell in love with it and, and felt like it was a good fit for me. Um, a lot of what I liked about teaching, um, which, you know, to a large extent involved kind of constant learning, um, having to constantly learn new things, certainly applied to book selling. Um, and I found that my background as a writer actually uh, was incredibly useful in terms of, of cataloging and selling books. So poet is a pretty hard career to make a living at. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so is book selling, but, 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 uh, but luckily it's, it's slightly it's easier than poetry. One step up the ladder. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I, I like to joke it was a good thing I didn't come into it from, say, being a lawyer or a doctor. It would have seemed... Um, it would have seemed much more intimidating, I think. <laughs> so, uh, last year, uh, 2019, you joined forces with another bookseller, uh, mm -hmm. Rebecca Romney. Can you tell us about that? Um, sure. Uh, last year, we started a, a, a new firm called Type Punch Matrix. Um, and this had been, um, you know, as booksellers do when booksellers get together, um, uh, they spend a lot of time talking about the book business. Um, and Rebecca and I had spent a long time um, thinking about the book business and talking about the book business. And, and uh, the more we talked about it, the more we realized we had very sort of sympathetic and complementary ideas about um, where we thought it needed to go and, and what we kind of thought a, a, a new and modern rare book firm might look like. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was all sort of very theoretical um, until we kind of had a, a couple of good business opportunities that, that – uh, 
presented themselves and made us think like, oh, well, maybe we uh, actually should do this. Um, so in June, we uh, uh, we founded the firm um, and uh, were working um, for most of the summer towards opening a gallery here in Was downtown Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, uh, had actually found a location and were negotiating for a lease. And uh, it, it unfortunately fell through. Um, and uh, so we took some time to kind of regroup um, and uh, get the company a little bit more established and put out some catalogs. So we've done four uh, uh, electronic catalogs to date, and we just put out our um, uh, first print catalog uh, just last month in a, in a stroke of terrible and unfortunate timing. Um, uh, and we were, we were, you know, frankly, just beginning to think about kind of regrouping and taking another run at looking for a, a gallery location, um, you know, when, uh, when all of Corona and COVID hit, and now we're, you know, just sort of waiting to see what happens. What is going to make Type Punch Matrix different to other uh, antiquarian book selling firms? Um, there's a few things that, that we kind of really wanted to accomplish when um, when we started. Um, you know, one of them was, uh, I think, the aesthetic um, of the firm. Um, we wanted to move away from some of the, I think, kind of um, traditional iconography of the rare book world. Um, you know, no dark mahogany wood. Um, uh, uh, you know, we wanted something that was cleaner and, and felt more modern. Um, and we also wanted something that felt uh, both more accessible and more diverse. Um, so we've given a lot of thought to, um, you know, the way we structure our descriptions and the kind of uh, uh, terminology and the amount of jargon, for example, that, that we led into it. And, and we also tried to be a little bit more thoughtful about um, what kind of inventory selection we're making. So one day when you've got your gallery going, what would I expect to see in there? Would I see more art, more ephemera? less leather-bound books? Um, I think that you could very well see all of those things, uh, but I, I'd like to think that it was not any single one of those things. Um, we would really like, uh, you know, uh, for a gallery space like that to feel very vibrant and to speak to the totality of print history. Um, so, yes, that certainly includes leather-bound books, um, but it also includes, as you say, to some extent, art um, or photography or uh, uh, music flyers, ephemera, uh, photo albums, um, collectible paperbacks. Uh, you know, there, there really is, there's a kind of tendency in the book business because many of us, if not most of us, tend to be sort of one-person shops or very small shops. There's, there's a tendency towards specialization. Um, and one of the things that we really wanted to do uh, with TPM is uh, to found a firm that could uh, be much more broadly based than that. Okay, so uh, I believe you are already passionate about encouraging a new generation of booksellers. Um, mm -hmm. And I know you're involved in two, two excellent ventures, the Rare Book School and the Colorado Antiquarian Bookselling selling Seminar. Right. Perhaps you could tell, you, tell us about why that is so important to you. Um, sure. Um, in the case of CABS, uh, which I've been involved in as a, as a faculty member since, I believe, 2014, um, it was really, for me, a way of, of giving back. Um, I attended CABS in 2006 um, as a little baby bookseller, um, and it was uh, enormously important and influential in terms of my career. Um, I, I kind of went into it um, thinking that maybe book selling was something that I wanted to do 
uh, full time and more seriously and, and as a career. Uh, and I left at the end of the week, um, knowing that that was what I wanted to do. Uh, I really felt like I was among my people. Uh, it was the first time I had ever had the opportunity to socialize uh, in any kind of group with booksellers. Um, and I also left, you know, frankly, with um, a, a really great kind of uh, knowledge base. Uh, to move more seriously into bookselling. Um, I like to say that, you know, my, my week at cabs easily saved me two or three years on my own trying to, to learn everything uh, in, in a more ad hoc manner. Um, so I was really thrilled when uh, when they asked me to come uh, back as a, as a specialty dealer my first year and then to join the faculty um, the subsequent year. Um, I just, uh, I, I think that the only way that the book seller community and the and the well really the, the larger book community including collectors grows is to have new dealers coming into it um and in many ways especially younger um and more diverse dealers uh because that's how we get um new areas of collecting in a lot of ways um uh, new sets of eyes on the kinds of material that will be collected for the upcoming generation if you don't no. attend one of these events mm -hmm. what's the road to the to learning your, your the skills of the trade is it uh learning from a like a senior colleague in, in a traditional uh used used and rare bookstore well before the internet um the way to the trade was often through a much more established firm um so you know through the decades the 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 i think the most common way to come to the book trade uh, was through a more established firm where you worked for a number of years um, uh, and kind of came up in the trade. Um, and then eventually you might go out on your own. Um, with the dawn of the internet, um, that really led to the closing of a lot of these um, larger firms that could support uh, staffs and employees. Um, and... Uh, Nowadays, what you tend to see is that, you know, um, most, as I said at the beginning of this interview, most firms r really tend to be one or two people in that the number of places where you can go to, um, the number of places where you can go to really learn the trade have shrunk. Um, and so most people, I think, come to the trade nowadays um, through the internet in one way or another. They might start as an eBay seller um, or uh, uh, they might start going to library sales and selling on, you know, selling the books that they find um, on Amazon or Abe. Um, but uh, the opportunities to, to kind of learn from someone who's more experienced are really diminished. Um, and uh, that's really, I think, part of the part of the gap that CABS has been, has been trying to fill for, um, well, since the 70s, um, but really especially in the last 20 years. Okay. Now, one of your areas of expertise is uh, modern duplicating technologies, right. which, Brian, I have to say, sounds terribly dull. I immediately it, think of photocopying, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. Uh, can you explain why things like offset printing is important? Why do I need to know this stuff? Right. Um, so, one of my specialties has... Uh, when I was coming up as a as a dealer, which is a reflection both of my own interests, but also uh, uh, the kind of place that I thought I could see myself fitting in the trade, um, I, I found myself de dealing in a lot of music ephemera, a lot of little magazines and small press, um, and a lot of those magazines and small press specifically came from a from a 
a period that's often referred to as the Mimeo Revolution, which is you know a kind of 40-year period after World War II um, when there was a real explosion in small press printing that was um, uh, in no small part uh, driven um, by uh, offset printing becoming cheaper and cheaper and a number of machines that had traditionally been used to print kind of being sold cheaply onto the secondary market and being bought um, by uh, uh, by artists and writers to, to use for their own uh, productions. Um, and I, I kind of became interested in studying this more seriously when I bought a collection of, of punk flyers um, that uh, I had no real reason to think were problematic in any way, and their, their provenance and where they came from made perfect sense. Um, and I put them up at a book fair once, and a, and a dealer colleague of mine who, who had a lot more experience in these than I did looked at them and said, um, you know, I think there's some problems with some of these, and, and talked to me a little bit about it. And uh, he said, you know, in fact, most of these should be offset printed. Um, and I said, you know, okay. And I nodded my head like I knew what he was talking about and really only had the vaguest sense of it. And uh, after that, kind of started asking around to colleagues of mine who dealt in similar material, um, asking them, you know, sort of what's the, what's the reference book for this? Um, where do I go to figure out, you know, what a first generation punk flyer should look like versus a second generation or a, you know, what should a Xerox look like that's different than a mimeograph? And um, the response that I got kind of from everybody is we don't know of one. Um, and most of us kind of just rely either on our on our gut or on our experience or on the provenance of the material itself. Um, and I started to think that if I was going to handle this material seriously, um, and if I was going to um, make claims for it in terms of its um, authenticity, then I really needed to understand this a lot better. And that was about eight years ago. Um, and I've spent the last uh, eight years or so um, building a collection uh, that um, both would help me learn how to differentiate these different printing technologies um, and also eventually to help teach how to tell these different technologies apart. Um, and so uh, uh, for the last couple of years, um, I've been working developing a class that is supposed to, fingers crossed, um, debut at Rare Book School this summer. Um, it's called Understanding and Identifying 20th Century Duplicating Technologies. Um, and uh, in it, we learn to differentiate, you know, mimeograph from offset from Xerox. And to get to your original question, which is why should any of us care about this? And it is indeed, in a lot of ways, a very sort of dull and technical question, um, I think is twofold. Um, I think one, um, for a lot of this material that was produced during the 20th century, a lot of it was made this way um, in one form or another, uh, whether we're talking about zines or flyers or little magazines or artist books. Um, many of them were produced using these uh, semi-professional or amateur methods. Um, and we as dealers and as librarians and collectors want to know that what we're getting is, you know, authentic and not reproduced at a later date, not some sort of facsimile. Um, and uh, so that's part one, but part two is also, you know, part of what we sell as rare book dealers um, is less the text and more the object. Um, and in order to understand the stories of these objects, we have to understand how they were produced. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these technologies um, 
understanding how they were how they were produced actually tells you a lot about the intent behind how they were created the circumstances under which it was created and sometimes even something like what the probable print run might have been um, you know there were certain technologies like spirit duplication or hectographs which uh, you know you could only do say a few dozen to maybe a few hundred print uh, uh, prints off of one uh, master um, so there's actually quite a bit that we can glean from from these uh, printed materials by understanding what the printing method is. So are you talking about technologies from, say, Warhol onwards? No, actually, going back much earlier, I mean, duplicate the, the origins of duplication um, go back into the 19th century um, and really begin partially with the development of lithography, um, but really with the development of two technologies. Um, one was, was the hectograph, um, which is a very sort of primitive uh, duplicating technology involving um, aniline dye um, and the uh, invention of stencil duplication. Um, and there were a, a few different similar but competing technologies from the 19th century. And both of those, uh, both of those technologies come into and get refined in the 20th century. Uh, so, so really, I mean, we're talking about the last 150 years of, of printing, um, but their their real dominance was in the 20th century from about 1900 to about 1980, 1990 in the development of, of home printing. Right. So mimeography, that involves stencils, correct? That's right. Right. Okay. <laughs> Jargon. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the easiest way to think about a mimeograph is, um, and mimeograph has been kind of, it's it's been kind of genericized, like you know, like tissue has, even Xerox for that matter, um, where we tend to use it and and refer to a number of different technologies. I often hear people say, "Oh, I used to you know sniff mimeographs when they would come off the machine when I was a kid in school," and actually that's a spirit duplicator, which is an entirely different process. Um, uh, with mimeography, the easiest way to think about it is it's it's not dissimilar to a silkscreen, um, in that uh, you're kind of you're creating a stencil that you then wrap around a drum and ink gets pushed through the stencil um, and onto the clean sheet of paper underneath it. Um, so if you know how a silkscreen works, a, a mimeograph is is not dissimilar um, uh, at its at its base. Okay, right. When I when I look for your in through your inventory on eight books, I can see all sorts of things that are not traditional collectible books. Mm -hmm. um, archives, photos, documents, even salesmen's samples. Yeah. Um, these seem to indicate to me where, where collecting is heading these days and perhaps also where type punch matrix is heading. Would I be correct in, in saying that? Um, to some extent, I would agree with that. Um, I, I would, I would, the way that I prefer to think about it is I, I think the way that collecting is moving is diversifying. Um, I don't think we're going to see people stop collecting high spots, for example. Um, I think there are plenty of people who still want to collect, um, you know, uh, uh, books that were important to them or great works of literature. Um, but I also think what we see happening in the last 10, 15, 20 years um, is a greater variety of collecting and a kind of collecting that is less about, um, say, trophy hunting in the way that high spot collecting can sometimes be, 
um, and uh, uh, more about telling different kinds of stories, telling a greater variety of stories. Um, and those are stories that uh, are often better reflected in much more ephemeral items, like you say, like like photo albums. Um, you know, the 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 history of vernacular and everyday in America. Um, that kind of uh, you know, if you're a scholar who wants to do research on on everyday lives, um, you're going to be looking in photo albums and diaries. Um, you're not going to be looking um, in uh, uh, you know a lot of the places. You're not going to be looking in presidential libraries, for example. Right. I think uh, photo albums are a really good example. They look humble. Yeah. But when you open them up, they are unique, yep. and there's such a personal insight into someone's personal history. It could be a couple of years during the war or a teenage years during the 60s, and it's mm -hmm. so insightful. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I, I enjoy them because for me they, they, they pose a challenge. As you say, every item is you – every – piece like that is unique um, and calls on you to, to do new research and describe them in new ways. Um, and I enjoy that challenge. But I, I also, um, as you say, think that, that to some extent this is where collecting is going, um, but also to some extent where I want collecting to be going, um, uh, to be um, more, uh, more accurately reflective of everyone's experience. Right. Now, those punk flyers, I yeah. sense that you're a music fan. I am. And you have lots of musical ephemera for sale, correct? Yeah, I do. Um, give, give us some idea of the highlights. I remember seeing some Sex Pistols memorabilia from you one time. Yeah, I have... Um, I'm trying to think what I have at the moment. At the moment, I have um, a couple of nice early Sex Pistols flyers. Um, uh, one of them from the 100... From an early gig that they did at the 100 Club, which I believe predated their first album. Um I have uh, a really great flyer from uh, an appearance by the Velvet Underground um, at a Boston club uh, that Andy Warhol was actually at filming, um, and it's the uh, only color footage of the Velvet Underground um, that exists, period, um, was from that particular date. Um, I'm trying to think what else I have. Uh, I, I've also, sort of tangential to music, I've also been kind of developing an interest in um, unusual spoken word records. Um, spoken word records or, or audio records that are put together by artists or by uh, uh, writers who you might not have thought would have done a spoken word record. So, for example, I have a, I have a record of uh, Heidegger reciting one of his uh, philosophical essays. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, yeah, the, the audio has always been um, an interest. All right, smashing Brian. Okay, uh, one more last question, which we ask sure. to all our guests. Um, what book or books are you currently reading? Um, I just got in the mail yesterday uh, Zora Neale Hurston's uh, Barracoon um, that I'm going to begin um uh, very soon. Uh, I also just started, or I'm in the middle of at the moment right now, um, How to Do Nothing, um, which uh, I think from its its title uh, sounds like um, a sort of very how-to kind of book of the moment, um, but actually is a sort of beautiful uh, philosophical meditation um, and, and much less of a how-to book. Um, and I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. And then I'm probably in the middle of about six or eight different books for work, uh, for the business, reference books or, or books on books. Um, one of the ones that I started whose exact title is escaping me, but uh, um, 
is uh, a book on children's books in Nazi Germany um, that uh, I sort of found on our shelves and, and brought home and started looking through. So you mix it up between pleasure and uh, reading for work? Um, I try to, although I think that probably 60 or 80% of it ends up being reading for work. Um, the, the, the line between pleasure and work reading is very blurry, for me at least. Right, okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, I have the same problem. Yes. <laughs> um, all right, uh, that's all we have time for this week. Brian, many thanks for joining us and telling us all about your adventures and also to type punch matrix. Richard, thanks for having me. Uh, I do hope we will meet again one day under happier circumstances. Yes, indeed. Perhaps at a book fair when we're having those again. Yes, yes. Stay safe and uh, take care. You too. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. That was uh, Brian Cassidy, uh, the co-owner of Type Punch Matrix. Uh, and we'll see you all again soon.